So, of course, preparing for this talk, I think it's a little loud, preparing for this talk, one naturally reflects on the experiences of the day and the week and now at this point, the four weeks that we've been together, this retreat as it's unfolded. I was just appreciating how much I learned from this experience. I, I learn from you in the interviews. I learn a huge amount in the process that goes on as, as we uh, talk together. And uh, I learn f- from my fellow teachers. <laughs> That's on tape. <laughs> For posterity. But mainly I learn from the Dhamma. I learn from the way things are, the truth of things. Downhill from here, I can tell. (laughs) That's why we had to have you sit over there. Luckily, that's on tape, not on video. (laughs) So where were we? The Dhamma, much more important. And one of the things that uh, always inspires me, um, motivates me, is this, uh, the teaching of the Buddha is this unique combination of the personal and the impersonal, the relative and the absolute, what we call the two truths. And how this paradox is really at the heart of our practice, of somehow um, understanding both of these aspects of our experience, the very personal and the impersonal, because they're always intertwining. You know, the, the thing about them is you can't separate them and say this is over here and that's over here. The personal is obviously our stories, our memories, our habits, our conditioning, our mind stream. And the impersonal is this knowing of the three characteristics or the four noble truths, the universal nature of experience. Yet that's when we bring that seeing to the personal, that's when awakening happens. So it's this beautiful process that goes on. If we emphasize one over the other, our practice and our understanding is imbalanced. If we cling too much to the transcendent and just try to be lofty and float above everything, that's uh, the, Tibetan, the Tibetans call that one-legged emptiness. It doesn't stand up. It's not balanced. If we just stay stuck in our stories, then true freedom isn't possible. There can be some relative freedom, but true freedom isn't possible. So we need to pay attention to both and find a, a balanced way of bringing wisdom to both of these important aspects of our experience and of the nature of things. I think it was Carol who used this great Nagarjuna quote, that uh, great Buddhist philosopher and scholar, when he said something like, Believers in things are are teachable, but believers in emptiness are incurable or incorrigible. And it's really pointing to that, that um, we need to not hold on to one or the other, but actually bring wisdom to both. 
he actually went on to say, uh, the Dhamma, this is Nagarjuna, the Dhamma taught by the Buddhas lingers on two truths. Sorry, hinges on two truths. Partial truths of the world and the truths which are sublime. Without knowing how they differ, you cannot know the deep. Without relying on conventions, you cannot disclose the sublime. Without intuiting the sublime, you cannot experience freedom. So I can see how they're both interwoven. We need to bring wisdom and understanding to both. And so this is really the challenge in the heart of our practice, this, this intertwining of these two truths and, and how we learn from that, how we grow and deepen. I began this retreat, my first talk was, I thought it was about right view and intention, but when I look back I realized I didn't talk that much about it, but I told a lot of stories. So I thought I would, as this kind of bookend for my last talk here at this retreat, go back to that because it's such an important part of our process and our path. As I said back then that right view and right intention are in the wisdom basket of the Eightfold Path. But when you see it in that way, they're either the beginning or the end of the path, and, and it's, it, they're talked about in both ways. So it's fitting to have talked about them at the end, at the beginning, and now, as I said, for, for as far as I'm concerned, at this culmination of the retreat for me. And what I see in these two teachings, why I think they're so so helpful and, and you know, just the f- field for a huge amount of exploration, is that they combine these two truths of the impersonal, the right view, the wisdom, and then the personal, how we manifest that in the world through this wise intention of renunciation, goodwill, and, and non-harming. So they're both contained in these teachings. Right understanding is really bringing the Dharma understanding into our lives and into our view of ourselves and the world to see how things truly are. But the natural expression of that, as the Dharma awakens in us, as we uh, more deeply understand these teachings, I've just seen it even on this retreat, this beautiful expression of kindness and caring that comes out from all of us. And they serve and strengthen each other. It's not like we do one in isolation and then go on to the next. It really is this beautiful harmony that gets created. And if you remember in that first talk, I spoke about how I was inspired by this beautiful statue, Buddha Rupa, in Sarnath, in the museum in Sarnath, um, and this mudra of the Buddha and how it became a a focus of conversation for our group, talking about the power of that and what it meant. Um, and in the first talk, I, I said it was this inner cultivation and outer expression, which I then realized was the same as right view and right intention. But reflecting on it, again, in the context of this talk, I really saw how these other teachings that I've been just referring to are also what this gesture can mean the two truths, the relative and the absolute. And another really helpful way to view our path and practice that a a 12th century Zen master, Shanul, talks about, which is 
sudden awakening, gradual cultivation. And really, again, I saw the, you know, the inward-facing mudra as the sudden awakening and the outward one as this path that we're on, this gradual cultivation. This uh, Zen master Shunul has a book called Tracing Back the Radiance. I love that title. And he really says that this is how practice actually unfolds. It's not like there's this big explosion of awakening and then all problems are solved. He says, no, you can have these insights and very deep insights. And then the real task is, how do you integrate them? How do you live that? How, do, how does that unfold in a whole way, in a life, in a being? And so he talks about learning to act as well as be enlightened. It really is, again, this cultivation, this sense of expression of the wisdom, of the understanding that I had. And this is what we are doing here for all of us have had during this retreat, I'm sure, but in our path of practice, these moments of awakening, these moments of insight, of clarity, where something new and profound and different is revealed to us. And it's wonderful. It's amazing. I mean, I'm just amazed over and over again as you come into interviews and tell me about the insights that you've had. But the real work is the integration of that how we actually live from that place without expecting miracles. As I said, it's not, you know, everything changes, but really honoring and developing um, the wisdom that comes out of those insights. So this is what we do here. This is our path and practice, this sudden awakening, gradual cultivation. And that's what it means to be on a path. It's a question I've actually asked some of you in interviews. You know, what does it mean to be on a path? Because I think it's helpful to have a concept about that, to have an understanding about that, a helpful concept. Um, it really means that we see freedom as possible, that awakening is possible, and at the same time, cultivation is necessary, purification is necessary for that awakening to happen, that they go together that it's not just relying on these flashes of insight or that, you know, living in the transcendent, the non-dual all the time, but we re- recognize we live in the world in this embodied way and we need to find ways to express that understanding and purify our understanding, purify our actions, purify our hearts and minds. So we're in process around that. And as I've been saying seeing so many of you coming in with that kind of understanding. Someone in an interview the other day talking about using metta to perfect her personality and realizing that wasn't what metta's about. It's really about this deep acceptance of who I am and the way things are. Huge amount of wisdom. When, you know, and we can f- try to use metta in this way as a way to get rid of something. You know, if I'm not liking what I'm feeling, I should do metta. As Ajahn Sumedho says, that's like having a big bat with metta written on it. You know, we're, it's our tool, but we're not using it very skillfully. We need to really do metta with metta, with this heart of metta that's, in t- that's uh, acceptance. Or someone coming in and just saying how they were in the midst of this huge emotional storm. And then the insight came that they could drop the story, drop the personal 
side of what was happening, the identification, and just see the energy arising. And then the storm could dissipate, which it will if we don't keep feeding it. So much wisdom. And so many of you dropping limited, limiting views about yourself. You know, all these different views that we carry of who we are and what we can be and what we can know or experience and just letting that burden drop, the relief, the, the sense of openness and spaciousness that comes from that. A number of you have also said things like, the teachings are so much better this year, which I always take as a little bit mixed of a compliment. It's like, well, I'm glad we're improving, but we, were we that bad before that you know you really noticed that it's that much better? Or I think what's actually more the case is you're in a different place. You know, how many times have you said something like, you know, why didn't you tell us that before about impermanence or whatever? So like, I think we did, you know, but we don't get it until we're ready, until the insight is ripe and it's ready to open. So this p- first path factor is what we've really been exploring in these weeks of practice, right view or right understanding. The word in Pali uh, for right that I'm translating as right or wise is samma. It's actually, you know, again, the Pali always seems to be connoting something that we don't quite have a good word for in English. And right and wise, you know, they're okay, but they're not great. It actually means more true or conducive to liberation, onward leading. That's more the definition of this. And so it means understanding these teachings, the the Dhamma, um, understanding karma and the three characteristics, understanding dependent origination and the Four Noble Truths. And you can see that these, it's not as though we begin and understand all that and then the path unfolds, we're constantly refining our understanding of these teachings and, and, and actually beginning more and more to live from a place of understanding them. So it's not a linear path. One of the, the central ways that wise view, wise understanding is defined is understanding the Four Noble Truths. And I just wanted to speak a little bit about that. We've talked about aspects of it, but just more as a whole teaching, um, because it is so important, so central to our path and our practice. You know, the Four Noble Truths, First Noble Truth, which is often, often wrongly uh, translated as life is suffering. The Buddha never said that. The First Noble Truth just says there is suffering. You know, if you have a body and a mind, there will be suffering. But even this word suffering as a translation for dukkha can be a little misleading because what is being pointed to is both very deep and profound, but also the subtlest levels of discomfort. And so I've heard uh, translations like unsteady or disquieted for dukkha, which points to something. And read also this image of dukkha being like a cart that has one wheel that's a little broken, a little out of round. And every time that wheel goes over the ground, there's this little clunk, this little not-quite-rightness, and you get a little jolt. 
But it's not, you know, the cart's still going along, things are still trucking along, but that just that sense of not quite rightness. And another Zen teacher, uh, David Brazier, who's written a book called Feeling Buddha, feels that a better definition of this word dukkha is that things happen to us. That things happen to us. So it's really not even trying to define it as suffering, as that sense of anguish, but just the fact that we're sensitive, that things impact us, large and small, and, and that, that, that this, is, this is the stuff of a life, as things happening. You know, the, the core shorthand of that is that bumper sticker, you know, shit happens, that's dukkha, stuff happens. This is what it's like. And it points to how unpredictable life is, that we can never know literally let, never know for sure what's going to happen any moment i mean have you had the retreat you expected are you having the retreat you expected i don't know any of you that have said well things are unfolding i knew that you know by this time i'd be experiencing this that no for every one of you it's like i never thought it would be like in, in good ways and bad ways you know but often in in good ways and so, you know, you come in for interviews and I, uh, you know, quite question, I ask, well, how are you? And, and the good answer is, when? You know, because it's always changing. Do you mean now or this morning or yesterday? It's always changing. And that's a big part of our practice, is just to be with that, that nature of change and really see it as a truth. That's the impersonal nature, that it's always changing. And each of these four truths has a practice that the Buddha asks us to take on. For the first noble truth is to understand suffering. And I, again, I saw someone who took this line, understand suffering, and to say what this really means is we need to stand under suffering like a waterfall. That there's really this kind of surrender that can happen when we truly understand suffering. And I know for many of you it can, have, it can have felt like that at times, this standing under this waterfall of suffering, as this sense of the fragility and the tenderness and the vulnerability of life, of our life, of everyone's life, really impacts us. It can feel like that. It can feel that challenging. And that's why we need to bring those qualities that James spoke about last night, just of patience and surrender and forgiveness as we open to this truth of suffering. But again, bringing the wisdom in that doesn't apply the second arrow, the second dart that says, why me? This shouldn't be happening. I don't like it that it's like this. It shouldn't be like this. This is a way we cause a huge amount of our suffering. Often we can be with what's actually happening on some level, but then the mind gets going on that path. Really difficult to continue opening. And the second noble truth says that the cause of suffering is tanha. Grasping, desire. And it's always interesting that the Buddha didn't say ignorance and didn't say aversion. He said tanha, thirst, craving. I think one of the reasons is, is because desire is so beguiling. Aversion, we can see, delusion's kind of hard to work with, but desire 
It's so beguiling, we often don't even know that we're operating out of it. And yet, as we grow and deepen in mindfulness, again, can really see desire as an energy force, as a field even, and feel it arising. Someone was talking about, oh, I see how desire's not even so much in relationship to an object, it just is, and it's just looking to land somewhere. And we keep feeding it, of course, because there's a pleasantness in this always holding out, this tantalizing sense that something is out there that's going to make it all right, make everything okay. And you see with this arising of desire, the self inevitably is there with that, I want, I need, I should have, I should get. And with the mindfulness, turning the attention to that, and seeing how the whole construct can just dissolve, can just diminish. So we watch this process again and again, the arising of desire, the construction of self, feel the constriction, feel the suffering, and with that noticing, just that mindfulness, a willingness to let it go. And then see how we choose to pick it up again, because it's so pleasant, we want what it's offering. And then we feel the suffering, we let it go, we pick it up, we let it go. We learn more and more just to let it be. But it's so, you know, we do it for a reason. And it's because we have this hope, this wish for it to be so, whatever it is. I know I have, you know, this wild fantasy. Anytime we're kind of struggling here at Spirit Rock and wondering how we'll do things, especially all of these new buildings that we need, and, you know, just serving our yogis and staff and teachers in a way that supports practice and is respectful and kind. And it feels like we're often, act, you know, in a state of limitation, you know, that there's not enough, not enough time, not enough money, not enough resources. And I'll just have this idea go through. Wouldn't it be great if someone would give Spirit Rock $20 million, you know, and then we'd have an endowment and we'd build the buildings and we'd take care of everything. Wouldn't that be great? And it's like, oh, that feels so good to think of what, and we do this and that and then Dhamma and practice and retreats. And then, I, you know, reality steps in, not likely to happen. And the, it's a contraction from that expanded state. It's like, oh, and then, okay, let it go. But really, wouldn't it be good? You know, how can you argue with that? Of course it would be good. And, you know, it's suffering. It's suffering to hold that out. Yet we do it. We choose to pick it up because it's some, you know, this magical thinking. Maybe if I think about it long enough or hard enough, somehow it'll come through. But it's suffering. It's suffering. And so the wisdom comes through. It's, it's, it's not what's true. It's not what's here. Let it go let this delusion go. And then we're in the third noble truth of the relinquishment, the letting go, the ending of the suffering. So the path unfolds out of that. So through the wise seeing, through, through just that little description I gave, you can see how the wise intention, the second path factor might come out of that. We see the truth of suffering. We see the cause of suffering possibility of the end of suffering. And so the path unfolds, this second path factor of samasankapa, wise intention. And if you remember, back those many weeks ago, we began talking, the retreat talking about intention, 
You know, it's what got all of us here was some fairly strong intention. If you think of all of the things you had to do, the obstacles you had to overcome, the things you had to put into place to get here. And it's what, kept, what has kept us going, what's kept all of us going, this power of intention, really having a sense of, of what would serve us, what would deepen our life and our practice. And in going on this pilgrimage, both last year and the year before, um, to prepare for going on pilgrimage to the Buddhist holy sites, one of the things we did was read a lot about um, the sites and their exploration and development. And what what I found out is a lot of what we know about the sites, because I think I mentioned in my first talk that most of them now are ruins, apart from Bodh Gaya, nearly all just rubble and uh, foundations and maybe some some brick stupas. We know a lot, what we do know about what they used to look like come from other pilgrims, and especially a few Chinese pilgrims who, you know, Buddhism had spread to China and really taken hold, and these, these brave souls got it in their head that they wanted to see the source of these amazing teachings that they had. And this is in like fourth, fifth, sixth century. So they walked from China to India. They walked through deserts, they walked over mountains, they survived bandits and, and robbers and you know wild animals. And most of them didn't survive. Only a handful made it. But a couple of them wrote journals about their what they saw in their adventures. And it's from that that we know a lot of what we do about the sites. And again, just being on our pilgrimage, you know, whenever the conditions weren't ideal, you just have to remember these people who did, I mean, these amazing, horrendous journeys. It was a clarity of intention that kept them going. They're just amazing stories of their bravery. And then taking these teachings back to their homeland and really inspiring and, and um, enlivening Buddhist practice in their countries because they they collected all of these texts, these scrolls and and written um, books and took them back, managed to get them all, you know, they had to walk all the way back. They didn't invent planes, you know, in between their journey to walk all the way back. It's amazing what intention can do. So Tibetans say all, everything rests on the tip of intention. And often in interviews, talking with people, one of the things one of the variations of questions I get is, how do I do more X? I want more X in my life, you know, whether it's a daily practice or compassion or study, whatever. I always say it doesn't matter what the thing is or even how you go about doing it. What matters is clarifying the intention, really getting clear that this is important for you. And if you keep the intention alive, then everything will unfold out of that. Everything will come. And you can see how intention is important in a mind moment as we choose to speak or act in some way, and it's important in the big picture over a lifetime of practice. So important. So we need to always ask, as my dear friend Sylvia Borstein always says when she's considering something, to what end? You know, what, what, what... Not, not to make a fixed goal about something, but really to have this clarity of purpose as we make these 
choices in our lives. So, discovering what's important for us, knowing what we value, and really nurturing that, having that be uh, a focal point for our reflections and our meditation, and then the actions will come out of that. There's that beautiful quote from Goethe, whatever you can do or dream you can, begin it. Boldness has genius, power, and magic in it. So it's really that sense. Again, not, you know, we bring the wisdom in, it's not wearing control and I'm going to do this, but really this, it's also combined with a lot of faith in these possibilities. So clarifying intention. I can remember for myself when I began on the Dharma trail and the Dharma path, I was in India and it's one of the blessings, you know, many blessings in my life, but was that I discovered the Dharma at age about 25 and I had no responsibilities, you know, I was just traveling in India and so I could just do retreats and and study and practice um, and it was amazing. And then when I finally left Asia, I went to England and arrived there and all of my friends that I'd planned to meet had gone off to Europe. So I was there kind of alone. Knew some people there, but, you know, didn't have any connections. And so the first thing I did was write down to the retreat center that Christopher Titmus and Christina Feldman were connected with. Now it's called Gaia House. Back then it was East Farmhouse and say, you know, I want to come do a retreat. But I was, you know, I was backpacking and staying in hostels and getting mail in poster response. But I got a letter back from them saying, great, there's a retreat starting this weekend. You can come down. Great. So, you know, backpack, got on the train, got on the bus, walked and arrived at, you know, it's very, quite isolated in a little village um, in Wiltshire and arrived there and some people kind of milling around and one of them looked at me there in the, in the garden at the front and kind of looked at me a little cautiously and said, you haven't come for the retreat, have you? And I said, well, yes, you know, I got this letter. And he said, you better go inside. I said, oh, do they know about me? What's the problem? I haven't even, you know, said my name yet. And I go inside and find the people who run the place and find out that that letter that had been mailed to me didn't have a date on it. And it had been mailed two weeks ago. And the retreat that they said was starting started the week before, and it was ending that day, and everyone was leaving. And not only was everyone leaving, they were literally closing up the retreat center because the staff they had to manage it, and they at that time only had two managers, were leaving, and the new people hadn't come yet, so they were just shutting the whole place down. I was devastated. You know, I'd spent a lot of money to get down there. You know, traveling's expensive. I didn't have anywhere to go. I didn't know anyone in the area, and it was, you know, getting late in the day. It's like, what do I do? Where do I go? I, you know, they said, you can't stay here. It was, you know, you can imagine. But they let me come in and have a cup of tea and, you know, wandered around. It's this beautiful English sort of country farmhouse kind of place. And I got to meet some of them and talk to the people and just expressed, you know, how much I wanted to practice. And I actually wanted to work there if I could to be a manager. Would they consider me? So I talked to them a little about that and wandered about. And then later in the day, they called me into the kitchen and said, you know, we don't know you, but you seem like a decent person. We're all going to leave and you can stay here. <laughs> so instead of having nowhere to stay, I had this whole house 
for two weeks until these new people came, you know, with an agar in the kitchen and a vegetable garden and the village store close by. It was like heaven after being in India for all those years. Uh, it was amazing. And so it was just, you know, one of those stories. And the fact that, you know, I'd come, if I'd just sat a retreat and gone, I wouldn't have made those connections. But somehow, because they trusted me, and uh, then the new people came, and I said, let me stay, I love it, let me stay. And they said, no, we don't need you, but we'll let you know. And so I had to go off and travel, and I met up with my boyfriend, the one I nearly had killed earlier in India, who's <laughs> still alive, and we traveled around. And finally, after a couple of months, I got that letter that said, we want you to come manage. And I just looked at him and said, I'm sorry, I'm off. This is what, you know, he's going, Italy, don't you want to go to Italy, Poland? No, I want to go to where the Dhamma is. And it was one of the best decisions I ever made that going to work in that Dhamma center, I got to meet, uh, you know, the teachers and to know them. I met Guy and Carol. I met so many people who are still important in my life. And I really saw from that time on that the major decisions I made in my life well, what, help, would, what would help me stay closer to the Dhamma, to Dhamma people, to Dhamma places? And it's just unfolded out of that intention, as I said, so many ways I've been blessed, out of that, that clarity of intention of staying closer to the Dhamma. So how do we do this? How do we keep aligning our life with the Dhamma? What does that actually look like? Well, what the Buddha said was these path factors of wise intention, these are the values that really will support us living a life of harmony. So wise intention is defined in this path factor as the intention of renunciation, of goodwill, and harmlessness, which is really compassion. Again, I spoke a little bit about those in my first talk, but to say some more about these practices and intentions. This first intention of renunciation is really not about giving things up, but knowing what's truly important and letting the other stuff go. It is a manifestation of an understanding of the second noble truth, you know, that Suffering is caused by desire and hanging on. And so that's the wisdom leading to the intention. We see that it doesn't work to hold on. We can't actually hold on. It's already going. And we need to, in this reflection, again, not jettison everything that we value or care about, but seeing what's truly important, what's really um, going to help us live this life of alignment with the Dhamma. And it's about true happiness, isn't it? It's not about getting stuff. We know that now. You know, we get seduced every now and then by the latest, greatest gadget or fashion or whatever it is. But in our hearts, we, we know that. Living life here on retreat... I mean, it just really points to that. How simple has your life been while you've been here? How few possessions have you had? Yet you've had everything you've needed for these days and weeks of practice here. 
Every year I go back to Australia to visit my family and I often try to think of interesting gifts to take, especially my sister has two you know, youngish girls, they're now what, 12 and 15, but you know, obviously younger on previous visits, the way that goes. And last year I took them in the book Material World. You know that book? It's been out for a while. Where these people went around the world, photog- photographers, to different people, different cultures, and had them, these families take everything they own out of their house, their home, and then they would photograph it. So, say, like the rural Indian family, they brought everything out, and, and you know, the very traditional Indian bed, it's called a charpoy, it's a wooden bed with a string frame. Everything they owned was on that bed, you know, some pots, some plates, a few utensils, some shawls and blankets on the bed. For the, in, for the American family, they had to get a cherry picker, you know, those big lifts to put the family up high so they would have a big enough lens to capture everything that this family owned. But even then, they couldn't get everything in the picture. They said there's many things they left out. And I thought it would just be interesting for my nieces to just go through that book and see, you know, just the disparity that there is. There's actually a new version. I'm, actually, I must remember, I'm going next, this month to t- buy it for them. It's called something like What We Eat, and it does the same thing where it's, it's a day's worth of food for a family and just to see the differences. So we, you know, can bring wise reflection. What do we really need? And of course, it's not as though everyone in America is materialistic. No, there's huge generosity and selflessness in this country. Parade Magazine, you know, Parade Magazine comes for free in the Sunday paper. is a great source of stories of human interest. And a little while ago, there was a story entitled, Why We Gave Away Our Home. And it had the story of a very typical um, American middle-class family who'd achieved the American dream or their dream house, you know. And their dream house, everyone has a bedroom. There's like four or five bedrooms. Everyone has a bathroom. Then there's a den and the living room and the media room. But they realized in this big house they lost each other. They were so separated that they weren't connecting as a family anymore. Everyone was just going to their little spaces, their big spaces in the house. And one day the teenage daughter came home really upset with the disparities she saw in this country, in the world, how some people have so much and others nothing. And the mother just said to her, well, so what do you want to do about it? What are you willing to sacrifice? Your room? Your house? And this young girl said yes to both and started a family conversation about this that ended up with them selling that big home, buying one half the size and taking the money that they made and reflecting for many number of months on what they would do with it, but finally giving it to a charity, a hunger project. And they said they've never been happier. It brought them together as a family. They had a purpose. They had a connection. And so much joy in that renunciation. And that's often the way. We give up to find that we actually get so much more in return. So as you've spent all these weeks in, a, in, a, in your simple room, those white walls, that little bed, have you needed much more? You know, at times the mind can go on, I know. But basically... <laughs> You know, you've had everything you've needed. For those of you who are leaving the retreat, 
look at what you pick up again. You know, this is one of the blessings of retreat. We get to see out of this simplicity, what do we choose to pick up to see we have a choice about that. The next of the wise intentions is goodwill, which is really metta. Guy gave a whole beautiful talk about it, so I'll just choose one aspect that I think is so important about this teaching and practice of metta, and that's metta for self. I always encourage people to do as much metta for self as they are motivated to do because it's such a powerful healing. It's so important for most, most of us and to really create this intention to learn to love and accept ourselves just as we are. Nothing could be more supportive of your practice than deepening in that. As the Buddha said, you can search throughout the entire universe for someone who is more deserving of your love and affection than you are yourself, and that person is not to be found anywhere. You yourself, as much as anybody in the entire universe, deserves your love and affection. Pretty powerful words. What would it take for you to manifest that? What stories about yourself would you have to let go of to actually have that be true? What limiting beliefs, you know, that I'm not good enough, that I don't deserve happiness, don't deserve these positive things in my life. Or that maybe I do after my 10-point improvement plan is completed and I've checked off all of those defects that I'm working on getting rid of. We have these stories about ourselves that are so limiting. And to really see that acceptance is the heart of metta. It's the heart of this whole practice, actually. It's another word for equanimity, but acceptance really has that sense of moving towards and, 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 uh, and connecting with. So we accept everything as it is. We accept our experience, our bodies, our minds. We even accept our history, our past, the difficulties of our lives, everything. Otherwise, it's suffering. If we're in, uh, sitting in judgment of ourselves and our experience and our lives, it's just suffering, and it's such a huge suffering as we judge ourselves to be deficient, judge ourselves to be not okay. And again, I know many of you working with this quite powerfully to really begin to transform that tendency because it's so painful and so limiting. And I always say this is not just some kind of incidental, incidental therapeutic kind of adjustment you need to make. To, to accept yourself or love yourself. It's essential. It's essential if you really want to deepen in this path and practice to have this sense of faith, confidence, and trust in yourself, love and acceptance of yourself. That's what will enable this path to deepen. So we have to look at these messages that we tell ourselves that we're not okay, that it's not all right, how, who we are, how we are, our experience. And to see that this voice that judges us as deficient is there for a reason. It's there because we feed it. 
Even if we recognize how painful it is, we can feel the suffering in it, unless we see what's happening, I call it the hook of the judge. It catches us. And it catches us because there's something pleasant in those judging thoughts for us. And I don't mean pleasant in la-di-da kind of pleasant, but something that, you know, it's just a taste that, that we get some sustenance from. You know, judging others, we can kind of see why we might do that, you know, what we get out of that. You know, we separate, I'm better than, you know, look at them, not me. But why do we judge ourselves as deficient? What, what really is going on there? So to really question that, what, what, what's, how does that serve us? Because again, it's a habit that we fed, and we fed it for, because in some way or another, it's supported us, it's served us in some way. Often what's happened is it served us in some distorted way at an age when we didn't have any other resources. And we're not in that place anymore, but the habit got so strong and got so fed that we just get lost in it. And we need to turn and look at what is that judging voice doing? What purpose is it serving in this deeper level, this deeper way that mindfulness can actually let us open to? And see that if we believe the judging thoughts, that there's a kind of safety in it, perhaps. There's an actual refuge in feeling small or diminished. It means I don't have to be my, I don't have to express myself or put my hand up or step forward or, you know, say something, do something. We hide behind it. We, the judge helps us stay out of trouble, but only by diminishing us, only by telling us that, you know, you shouldn't step forward. No one will believe you or respect you or trust you or, you know, accept you. And so we hide because the judge says, don't even try. We need to turn towards that message and really see it for what it is. A distorted uh, voice in the mind, or just a thought in the mind that somehow we think is protecting us or, or, or showing us some kind of safety and realize it's not. It's not doing anything of the kind. It's constricting us, it's limiting us, it's narrowing our possibilities. And we need to turn towards it and see it for what it is. I mean, simply, thoughts in the mind. As we've said so many times, thoughts have the power we choose to give them. If you see them for what they are, blip of energy, gone. You hold on to them, you take a hold of them and believe them, the whole world is separate, heaven and hell are right there in that. It's just some energy in the body. can know that. Don't have to believe it. And as more and more these, this wise view and wise intention becomes established for us, as we connect more and more with the truth of things, the truth of who we are, this level of acceptance, we start to see we don't want to believe. We don't need to believe these judging, limiting thoughts that it's possible to actually come from a place of acceptance and trust and kindness. And that that's more important, more valuable, more relevant than this narrow, limiting sense of safety or whatever it was that we got when we believed this judging voice. There's an author that I found very helpful. He wrote a book called Soul Without Shame called Byron Brown. And he says this, 
The only real alternative to self-judgment is knowing the truth about who you are. If you have a deep belief that you are worthless, you must discover where that belief came from and why you believe it to be true. Once you know deep inside you, with a direct and felt sense, that you have inherent value and are fully acceptable to yourself, then you will free yourself from the need for positive judgment and approval from others and from your own judge. This is possible for all of us. Through this practice, through mindfulness and acceptance, to really end the tyranny of the judging voice that says we're not good enough and start to trust and believe in the possibility of true happiness. As we say, as I say this, this line, true happiness, you really, I, mean, I really encourage people to reflect on what is that? What is that for us, true happiness? We might have had some idea of what it is, but if we look closely at that, realize no longer relevant. It's changed what we mean by happiness. It's really much more independent, much more something that we nurture from within rather than look to get from without. And we also have to recognize that what's happiness for us isn't necessarily happiness for others. In this practice of mudita that we did, perhaps got a taste of that, that if we expand our concept of happiness, many more possibilities for happiness with that practice. Someone gave me this cartoon a while ago, which has become one of my favorites. It's, it's, I guess it's, a, it's not quite a cartoon about mudita, but it's leaning in that direction. It's, it's talking about the happiness of others anyway. The scene is a father who's taken his two children ice fishing. So they're all bundled up. There's ice, icicles. It's, you know, the frozen wasteland of some lake with the hole, and he's sitting on a box with the fishing rod. You know, you can't see any faces. They're so bundled up. And the caption, and the, the two kids are kind of looking at each other, you know. And the caption is the father saying, it doesn't get any better than this, said dad. The kids who were hearing this for the first time were too stunned to reply. <laughs> it does get better than that. True happiness is what we find, not you know, going out ice fishing or roller skating or hang gliding or whatever. There's happiness in those things, but it's really what we find when we truly accept who we are and our experience. That's what our practice and the wisdom teaches us. The third intention is that of harmlessness, which is really practicing sila, ethical conduct, I love this word, ahimsa. That's a translation, harmlessness, ahimsa, non-harming. And having lived here all these weeks, have you noticed what ahimsa does to the animals around here? I think we spoke about it already, but have you had to weave your way through a herd of deer or a flock of turkeys? You know, even the birds don't seem to run away as much as they do in other places. To really feel what what that gift is. And ahimsa is the practice of giving others the gift of fearlessness. It really is a gift. We give ourselves the gift of freedom from remorse, 
and we give others the gift of fearlessness. And you've probably seen how, you know, as we've lived this life of uh, following, honoring the five or the eight precepts, what a sense of, as they say, the bliss of blamelessness. And of course, you know, we mess up every now and then, but we come back to that clarity of intention about living with this sense of kindness and care for others. And you really see how that allows the mind to settle in meditation as we've lived in this way. Albert Einstein, he, he was so brilliant, wasn't he? You know, how do you do you know, quadratic equations and be such a, an amazing person? The ideals which have lighted my way and time after time given me new courage to face life cheerfully have always been kindness, beauty, and truth. Just living a life of kindness, of care for others. So we honor the precepts of not killing and not stealing, not harming ourselves or others through sexual activity, precept of wise speech, and not clouding the mind through drugs and intoxicants that lead to heedlessness. This is the intention of harmlessness. The positive expression of that is compassion. You know, it's just natural that as we as we um, grow in sensitivity, grow in our own appreciation of the vulnerability of life, heart just opens, doesn't it? Just opens to this tenderness. I started talking about suffering, the first noble truth. It's a doorway. You know, it's not a problem. It's a doorway. It's a doorway to compassion. And we stand under that waterfall and just open to this truth because we see it as as this practice of opening the heart, of allowing ourselves to truly feel with. That's what compassion literally means. And our hearts are so tender now after these weeks of practice. Don't you feel it, how, how responsive they are? I've... Uh, I like to exercise, so I've taken to exercise with a heart rate monitor. And it's really interesting to track that, but I'll often have it on either before or after the exercise. And you just see, you just lift an arm and it ticks up. The heart is responsive, and that's just on a physical level. There's this whole level of how responsive our hearts are, and they just register, don't they? They register everything. We need to pay attention to these sensitive hearts and really honor what they're revealing to us about the nature of our lives and the nature of existence, that it's precious, it's vulnerable, it's sensitive, and it's always changing. It's not me or mine, it just is. And so the whole path can develop out of these two factors of wise view and wise intention, really you know, this expression of wisdom and compassion. With wisdom, we know the truth of suffering, of impermanence, and we know also the truth of the ending of suffering. And the natural response is this open, receptive heart. We let go because we see that to hold on is more suffering. We open to the the, the, the challenges of life and the expression of that, the, the response is then compassion towards ourselves and others. 
And it just develops. I mean, it's just so amazing to me. All of our journeys so different, yet each manifesting this beautiful unfolding of wise view and wise intention. I want to finish with a poem. Someone mentioned it to me yesterday, I think, and so I I remembered how much I like it and how it speaks to these two truths. This is The Little Duck. Now we are ready to look at something pretty special. It is a duck riding the ocean a hundred feet beyond the surf. No, it isn't a gull. A gull always has a raucous touch about him. This is some sort of duck, and he cuddles in the swells. He isn't cold, and he is thinking things over. There is a big heaving in the Atlantic, and he is part of it. He looks a bit like a Mandarin or the Lord Buddha meditating under the Bodhi tree. But he has hardly enough above the eyes to be a philosopher. He has poise, however, which is what philosophers must have. He can rest while the Atlantic heaves because he rests in the Atlantic. Probably he doesn't know how large the ocean is, and neither do you, but he realizes it. And what he does, and what does he do, I ask you? He sits down in it. He reposes in the immediate as if it were infinity which it is. That is religion, and the duck has it. He has made himself part of the boundless by easing himself into it just where it touches him. The people of the Middle Ages were more like this duck than we are. They took life as it presented itself and ran it up in spires of Gothic. They crossed few oceans, but they floated on the sea of time. And a cat is more like this duck than we are. We can radio to the moon and get back a pip for an answer. This was actually written in the 40s. But a cat can make a hearthrug a haven for the infinite or launch four kittens into life in a cracker box by the furnace, purring with pride because she has tuned in on cosmic waves. I like the little duck. He doesn't know much but he has religion. As Joseph Campbell says, I don't believe people are looking for the meaning of life as much as they are looking for the experience of being alive. Here we are, alive. Let's just let the words settle into silence. We make ourselves part of the boundless by easing ourselves into it just where it touches us.
before you leave, I just want to make an announcement. The 